The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss Oceanus, the very first Titan, and if illusion and shallow references are anything to go off of, perhaps, generally speaking, the very first god, including primordials, titans, and Olympians, in all of Greek mythology. This, in a broader sense, is indicative of how complex Greek mythology was. There having been, the accounts that remain popular today notwithstanding, different versions of the creation myth, something evidenced by a multitude of allusions to Oceanus as a creator across an array of works, and by offshoots of what could be called Orthodox Greek mythology such as Orphism, a religious movement that centered on the hero Orpheus, who was thought of as the seed from which Orphism grew, him having brought back secret knowledge when he returned from the underworld to the land of the living. Oceanus was the personification of the great river that encircled the world, and in the context of his family, the other eleven first-generation titans, he was somewhat of an aberration, partial to pacifism as he was. He eschewed conflict, neither joining in the castration of his father, nor fighting in the Titanomachy, the ten-year war between the Olympians and the Titans. I was going to say, though he was undoubtedly one of the most powerful gods in Greek mythology, he seldom surfaces in any of its myths, more often existing as a piece of the stage on which Greek mythology unfolds than as an actor in the production. But after delving into his mythology more deeply, he actually does have a nice little niche. He's mentioned a handful of times by Homer in the Iliad and Odyssey. In Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, he visits Prometheus, now chained to a rock by Zeus, and offers the condemned god succor. One of the Orphic hymns is dedicated to him, and generally, he is either mentioned or makes brief appearances in a number of other works. As well, the Iliad features several allusions to Oceanus, not Chaos, being the first god, and thus the ultimate source of creation in Greek mythology. Together, these allusions could hardly even be called fragmentary, but what's perhaps most compelling about them is how creation conceptualized as beginning with Oceanus, as beginning with water, is consistent with the creation myths of the Near East and of ancient Egypt. The Near East, specifically ancient Mesopotamia, known today to have been a major influence to the development of Greek mythology. Alright, let's get into it. It's not uncommon to hear people say, Titans aren't gods, they're Titans. This is incorrect. Titans are gods, a specific group of gods. Just as the Olympians, the gods who live atop Mount Olympus, are a specific group of gods. The twelve titans were the progeny of Gaia, the personification of the earth, who birthed them, and of Uranus, the personification of the sky, who sired them. Their number comprises six gods and six goddesses. The six male titans, gods, were Oceanus, Coius, Creus, Hyperion, and Iapetus. And the six female titans, goddesses, or Titanides, were Thea, Rhea, Themis, Mnemosyne, Phoebe, and Tethys. The Titan cohort also includes many of the children of the original twelve Titans, meaning there are second and third generation Titans as well. 
Though this, categorizing gods, is a seemingly arbitrary business, often more contingent on allegiance than parentage. Zeus and his five siblings, despite being the children of Cronus and Rhea, are not considered titans, whereas Atlas, condemned to forever hold the sky up upon his shoulders, was the son of Iapetus and was considered a second-generation titan, as were his siblings, Menetius, Prometheus, and Epimetheus. Anyway, it's all a bit muddled. Oceanus was the eldest of the twelve first-generation titans, meaning he was the very first titan. Tethys, his younger sister, was his wife, and she, depending on the version, was either a sea goddess or the personification of the font of fresh water that was the ultimate source of Oceanus's own sweet waters. Oceanus, in turn, the source of every river and rivulet, of every torrent and tributary that flowed and cascaded the world over, the very veins of the earth, the capillaries that conveyed life to the four corners of creation. Born to them were many children, a proliferation of progeny, the two of them procreating more offspring than any other divine pair in Greek mythology. Their children included the Oceanids, a group of 3,000 water nymphs, and all the rivers of the world. Unlike most of the Titans, others like Helios, the personification of the sun, also being exceptions, Oceanus was one of the material manifestations of the universe, in this respect making him more akin to the primordial deities who came before him than to the Titan cohort he was born into. Oceanus was thought to be the great river that encircled the earth, making him the terrestrial frontier, the outer limit of the earth, which, before philosopher-mathematicians like Pythagoras and Parmenides, was thought to be flat and disc-shaped. Here's a passage from classical mythology A to Z that expands on this. From an elemental perspective, Oceanus was early on envisioned as a river that encircled and thus was the outer boundary of the flat, disc-shaped earth. This, for example, is how Oceanus is depicted on the shield of Achilles in Homer's Iliad. Oceanus was believed to be the source of all rivers. Helios, the sun, and Eos, the dawn, were thought to rise from Oceanus's eastern banks and then, having completed their daily journey, to sink back into the river in the west. For Homer, the Elysian fields and Hades lay beyond Oceanus, and thus beyond the limits of the world. Legendary locations like the Elysian fields and dark dominions like Hades, existing beyond the waters of Oceanus, ties into a more fundamental notion about what Oceanus was. He wasn't just the great river or the boundary of the mortal world, he was the divide between the material and the mythic, something like a magic divide you might see in a fantasy story that partitions the human world from the supernatural and otherworldly. Originally, the Elysian fields, also known as Elysium, were conceived of as existing beyond the underworld. This changed over time, though, becoming, instead of an independent location, a paradisiacal province of Hades' realm. The first mention of the Elysian fields comes in the Odyssey, in a prophecy that foretold Menelaus would not be claimed by death's clutches, but would be borne by the gods to the Elysian fields, located at the edge of the earth, specifically the western edge of the river Oceanus. Beyond transcendent territories that could only be reached through heroism, being a paragon of virtue, or death, 
Exotic people and mythical creatures were also said to dwell near the shore, the perimeter of the earth, which was, by dint of its proximity to the waters of Oceanus, imbued with a measure of the magical divide quality Oceanus embodied. Examples of mythical creatures proximal to Oceanus include the Gorgons, monstrous snake-haired women, Geryon, a giant killed by Heracles, the Hecatonchores, a trio of primeval giants with 100 arms and 50 heads, and the Hesperides, the nymphs tasked with tending the golden apple-bearing trees gifted by Gaia to Hera as a wedding present. Pertaining to how Oceanus was conceptualized as a material manifestation of the universe, this changed as the ancient Greeks became more informed, the edges of the map filling in, so to speak, science supplanting, to a limited extent, what was formerly inscrutable phenomena explained by gods and monsters. Here's another passage from classical mythology A to Z to shine a little more light on this. As geographic exploration and speculation progressed in the course of time, the conception of Oceanus as a river was questioned, and it was increasingly thought of as a great sea beyond the Straits of Gibraltar, the Atlantic Ocean, whereas a world sea that encompassed all oceanic waters interconnected. Oceanus' depictions range from the mundane, a mature, bearded man, to the mythical, the same man, but with horns and a fishtail. He was incongruent in the context of his own family, drastically different from his five younger brothers, all of whom shared a propensity for violence and conflict. Unlike his seditious siblings, Oceanus didn't participate in the castration of his father, as is said in Pseudo-Apollodorus' Bibliotheca. Now Gaia persuaded the Titans to attack their father, so all of them except Oceanus set upon Uranus. He also didn't participate in the war between the gods and the titans, remaining neutral throughout the cataclysmic clash. He did, however, encourage his daughter Styx to join Zeus, probably perceiving which way the winds of victory were blowing. His only involvement was extending the sucker of refuge to Hera, who remained with Oceanus and Tethys while the war raged on, interminable, lasting ten years, and destructive to the extreme, remaking the face of the earth. Later, much later, Hera expressed that she would return to reciprocate the kindness and support once shown to her. However, as we'll see, Hera's actual intent, not her purported intent, the pretense she presented to Aphrodite, was not to give back to the couple that helped her so long ago, but to help the Greeks in the Trojan War. Here's the passage from the Iliad. Hera addresses Aphrodite. Since I go now to the ends of the generous earth on a visit to Oceanus, whence the gods have risen, and Tethys our mother who brought me up kindly in their own house, and cared for me and took me from Rhea, at that time when Zeus of the wide brows drove Cronus underneath the earth in the barren water, I shall go to visit these and resolve their division of discord, since now for a long time they have stayed apart from each other and from the bed of love since rancor has entered their feelings. Could I win over the persuasion, the dear heart within them, and bring them back to their bed, to be merged in love with each other, I shall be forever called honored by them and beloved." Hera never intended to visit Oceanus and Tethys, but this is what she told Aphrodite, a ploy presented to allay Aphrodite's suspicions and, once lulled, 
borrowed the love goddess's girdle, for it was magical, enhancing charm and beauty. The story Hera spun was that wearing it would assist her in ameliorating the situation between the two titans, closing the chasm between them and mending their marriage. The reason Hera employed this deceptive gambit was that she and Aphrodite supported opposing sides, Hera, the Greeks, and Aphrodite, the Trojans. If Hera told Aphrodite why she really wanted the girdle, she would have been refused and thwarted. Hera wanted the girdle so that she could seduce Zeus, thereby distracting the king of the gods and creating an opening for Hypnos, the god of sleep, to sedate him to slumber. With Zeus thus incapacitated, Poseidon, who was currently forbidden by his brother from sending his strength directly against the Trojans, would be unimpeded in bolstering the Greeks and unleashing death and destruction upon the ranks of their enemies. Having discussed who Oceanus was in Greek mythology, we will now transition to the second part of the video, which takes a more focused approach in delving into the alternative cosmogony that centers on Oceanus instead of chaos. Homer and Hesiod are two ancient Greek poets. From them came the oldest works of ancient Greek literature that have survived through to today. When exactly they lived and produced their seminal and singular works are things not known for certain, still debated by scholars. Some sources say that Homer was first, others that Hesiod was. But generally, you would be making a very safe claim if you said they both lived and produced their works, irrespective of temporal precedent, in the 200 intervening years between 850 BC and 650 BC. Hesiod's Theogony is an ancient Greek poem that describes the origin and genealogy of the gods, beginning with chaos, the great void from which everything emerged. From chaos, the first primordial deities, including Gaia, the earth, Tartarus, the abyss beneath the earth, and Eros, love and desire, were either born or self-engendered, depending on the interpretation. The poem continues with the birth of the Titans, their conflict with the younger Olympian gods, and the eventual triumph of Zeus as the supreme deity. Throughout, Hesiod weaves in various myths, such as the story of Prometheus and the creation of humanity. It would be fair to say that today the authoritative version of the Greek creation myth comes from Hesiod's Theogony. Its age, one of the oldest surviving Greek works, and its completeness, comprehensively covering the creation myth and more, making a strong case for this. But interestingly, another version of the Greek creation myth is alluded to in the Iliad, this one centering on Oceanus instead of the chaos-catalyzed structure of primordial deities. One mention of this version relates exclusively to Oceanus, reading, Hypnos addresses Hera, any other one of the gods whose race is immortal I would put to sleep, even the stream of that river Oceanus, whence came the seed of all the immortals. Another, this one relating to both Oceanus and Tethys, reads, Hera addresses Aphrodite. Since I go now to the ends of the generous earth on a visit to Oceanus, whence the gods have risen, and Tethys our mother. And in addition to what Homer wrote, there's also a bevy of similar allusions present in later works. In Birds, written by Aristophanes, it says, the immortals did not exist until Eros, love, had brought together all the ingredients of the world, and from their marriage, Uranus, Oceanus, 
and the imperishable race of blessed God sprang into being. In Orphic Hymn 83, it says, Oceanus I call, whose nature ever flows, from whom at first both gods and men arose. And in Theotetus, written by Plato, Homer's own words are reiterated. Homer, who, in the line Oceanus, the origin of the gods, and Tethys, their mother, has said that all things are the offspring of flow and motion. Oceanus being the progenitor of the gods is touched on in classical myth, which says, according to a passing reference by Homer, Oceanus and Tethys themselves gave birth to all the gods, a good example of a different cosmogony parallel to Hesiod's, where chaos as the first god is espoused and expanded on by some of the most important works pertaining to Greek mythology. The extent of Oceanus' own version is today relegated to a few passing remarks. While Hesiod's Theogony boasts the oldest extant Greek creation myth told in its entirety, there are a couple of compelling points connected to the mentions of Oceanus being the creator in the Iliad, mainly that there is a congruity between it and the creation myths of other Eastern mythologies, such as those of ancient Mesopotamia and that of ancient Egypt. Greek mythology is thought to be, to a varying degree, largely or marginally, depending on who's weighing in, derivative of the mythologies of the Near East. So it would make sense if its creation myth reflected the antecedent mythologies that were influential to its development. The Sumerians, the civilization that invented cuneiform, the oldest known writing system, believed the world originated from a primordial state of watery chaos referred to as the primeval sea, this personified as the goddess Namu, and the ancient Egyptians were of like mind, also believing that the world originated from a primordial state of watery chaos, in their case called the waters of noon, personified by the god noon. Furthermore, there's the Babylonian creation myth, which personifies the primordial waters of chaos as two gods, Tiamat, the goddess of salt water, and her husband Apsu, the god of fresh water. This paralleling the illusion from the Iliad in which both Oceanus and Tethys, a sea goddess or the font of fresh water that feeds Oceanus' own waters and the husband of Oceanus, are said to be the father and mother of the gods. Here's a passage from classical myth that comments on the influence of the Near East on mythologies that subsequently surfaced. Whereas such myths as those of the Trojan War appear to be Greek in origin and to go back to the Bronze Age or earlier, other very important stories had their beginnings not in Greece, but in the non-Indo-European Near East. Ancient Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, which occupies the region of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what is today Iraq, was a particularly important source. The Greek myth of the origin of the present world order in a battle of the gods, for example, was certainly of Mesopotamian origin. The Near East background for prominent Greek myths is so important, we must now say something about these stories that leaped cultural and linguistic barriers to influence the Greeks and, through them, the entire world. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.